0: hello everyone welcome back to eastern approaches podcast number 25 and the actual number that's important is f- number one as in first podcast in three months Woo-hoo. Uh, uh, i know gotta i don't know we can't really make a bunch of excuses uh but i'm i'm with my good friend ben curtis ben i've heard you've been hanging out reading books or something like that on eastern europe
1: yeah you know and uh and as you yourself have recently confessed i actually don't mind reading books in pdf and e-form so i've actually i've actually read this i still read things imagine that um it's great to be back here on the podcast 25 it's not exactly the 25th anniversary we could pretend that it is because then is that the is that your silver anniversary what's your is, we should we ought to be able to getting some silver so anybody who's listening to this Whatever some coins.
0: Drop us some silver
1: coins. Yeah, whatever the metal is associated with 25 anything, um, please just uh, send us that care of Andrew alone. Um no, thanks. It's great to be back. Thanks, everybody, who's listening. And yeah, this is a a very special episode, just like in the 1980s, when you'd have a very special episode uh, talking about important things, because we have a very special guest on this very special episode. And his name is Tomek. I'm going to do. I'm going to pronounce your last name Tomek Tomek, as if I were, as if I still lived in Chicago. Jankowski. So (laughs) Tomek Jankowski, um, who is the author of the excellent book Eastern Europe, exclamation points, which is a history of Eastern Europe, everywhere from the Czech lands on east into Russia, and it's a big fat interesting engaging tome and we are very happy to have him as our guest on this 25th uh, episode spectacular to kind of talk about the book and talk about eastern european history so welcome
2: Tomek. thank you ben thanks for having me uh andrew uh this is a great opportunity and uh, i'll just mention that uh the physical book uh the, the hard copy uh is great for holding up couches so that's another mm. advantage of the pdfs
0: so yeah, that's and- why I'm always I'm going hard copy always because you never know or you take it to the you know what you go to the cafe and the, the table's always like, you know, like your beer is going to spill because it's not level or whatever. So you could probably just take some of the book and fix that
2: too, maybe. Exactly. It's just like those, you know, the chefs that don't like uh, tools that only have one purpose with this mm-hmm. book, you can just use it to hold up furniture. It's great.
1: And I was reading something recently about how sitting is the new smoking. So when you're sitting and reading the physical copy of this book, you can also be lifting it and toning your muscles. So there's another Um, Nice, but, and you know what? It's not just a a, um, weightlifting tool. It also has interesting words inside it. Um, So we're gonna talk about some of those interesting words, but Tomek, could you, first of all, just kind of tell us like who you are, what's your background and how you came to write this book?
2: Uh, Sure. So um, I was born into a family that, on my father's side at least, uh, had a a recent Polish uh, heritage um, and, uh, you know, 20th century, mid-20th century uh, type thing. And uh, so I I grew up surrounded by a lot of people in in communities that functioned that way uh, culturally, linguistically, etc. And uh, I ended up uh, going to, uh, I was actually going to go to university in Poland, but uh, because of some bureaucracy that fell through uh, since the 1980s, uh, the, the communist government uh, mm. had paperwork issues back then, among other things. Um, so I ended up in Hungary for years, uh, unexpectedly, went to university there uh, and uh, had an amazing experience, uh, learned a lot. And then um, uh, when I came back the first time, um, I started getting a lot of questions. From three basic groups. Uh, one of them was um, people who, uh, business people who were looking at investment opportunities. This is the nineteen nineties by now. Mm-hmm. Eastern Europe was changing. A lot of people were looking at what's going on there. What you know, what what, what really exists on the ground. Mm-hmm. Um, a second group were uh, those who were interested in the topical, the political issues. Again, what's what's changing? What's you know, what's it like to be in a communist state, and how are things changing? And the third group were people who had, you know, grandma, or grandpa had come from somewhere, and they couldn't pronounce a name, but, you know, they, they wanted to know something about that background. They wanted to understand a little bit about um, what uh, what it meant to be from there, and what was it, you know, they were they some of them were doing genealogy and coming up with weird names and things, and they wanted to understand that. So that I, I just decided to kind of ball that all up into an introduction to the region, um, and uh, and to uh, just help try to. It, Provide the basic uh, doormat entryway mm. for uh, anyone to to look into the region. I'm uh, on the professional side. I'm an analyst uh, in the professional services world. I deal with uh, lawyers, consultants, insurance brokers, that type of thing. Um, but part of that also deals—it's a global scale—and I also have to deal with Eastern Europe. I spend a lot of time speaking to people deal, doing business there, trying to understand issues, uh, investments, and regulatory and other issues. There. So
1: Interesting, yeah. So I mean, you kind of come from the strands feeding into this, or not only your own kind of personal heritage, but then your time living in the region, especially at a, and living and working, I guess, is in the super, super interesting times, including right around the fall of the Iron Curtain. And then, you know, I guess engaging with people back in North America who are interested in it and uh, for their own various reasons, and still today kind of working globally. So I think that's, to me, that helped explain why the book is quite accessible? Like it's it's. Tell me if I'm if I misinterpret, but um, one of the things I liked about the book is that even though it is a you know a a, a substantial tome, it's written so that you don't have to have a PhD um, to understand it, and it's it's there kind of for general audiences. Was that part of the thinking?
2: That was very much a part of the thinking to make to make it as accessible as possible, as interesting as possible. And to try to make connections for people to show that, you know, to to, to make it easier for them to plug this book mm. into what they already understood about the world, uh, you know, very quickly and, and understandable. hmm
1: Yeah, I mean, and well done on that. And I and one of the features I like about the book is um which we'll kind of get to, I think, later on in the conversation, is some of the like uh, trivia factoids because you know <laughs> Andrew and I are both trivia nerds and this book is is chock full O good trivia factoid so you know what why don't we actually why don't we start off with one can you like drop on us to kind of launch maybe a more substantive talk about some of the eastern european history stuff like a favorite trivia factoid about eastern europe
2: sure so i often so what i did is uh i, I created these little boxed off sections i called useless trivia and again my, my point is to use humor here but um I usually have ulterior motives. I'm trying to show something with the little trivia that I'm that i uh, that I'm putting uh, inserting into the text, and, and, and uh, so one of them, for instance, would be uh, Muhammad Ali Pasha. So uh, we're we're looking at uh, the very end of the 18th century. Um, when the Napoleonic Wars are raging, and there's this Albanian guy who's called up by the Ottoman uh, Sultan. Uh, he's he's caught up in a draft basically as, as the Ottoman Empire, the Turks are gearing up to fight Napoleon and Egypt. Um, it goes really badly. Uh, of course, they're utterly scattered like everyone in the early years of the Napoleonic Wars, but uh, Muhammad Ali pays attention and he sees how the French are organized and sees that it's really innovative. And so um, in the wreckage of all this, that Napoleon leaves Egypt, uh, he's put in charge of reorganizing what was then Ottoman Turkish rule of Egypt. Um, but he starts doing it along Napoleonic lines and he uses a lot of his fellow people, most of them Albanians, some Bosnians, from the Ottoman Balkans. Um, over the next couple decades, he actually starts breaking Egypt away slowly from Ottoman control to the point where finally in 1832, the, the Ottoman Sultan at that time sends an army to crush him and is defeated. Because by this point, Ali has actually created an army based on Napoleonic designs. Uh, and so he and his descendants, uh, uh, who are Albanians uh, with some Bosnians and others in the mix, basically run Egypt for the next century plus. Um, it, so Egypt is ruled by this Albanian dynasty. Hmm. Now, with each each succeeding generation, they, fo- they 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 become less Albanian and more Egyptian. Till by the time you get to the 1950s, when his final uh, ruling uh, relative Farouk, King Farouk. Is overthrown by the Egyptian army uh, by Nasser, um, mm-hmm. creating the modern Egyptian Republic. You know, he's, there's not much Albanian about the guy other than his But, you know, again, there's for more than a century, Egypt was ruled by essentially this Albanian slash hybrid Bosnian dynasty. And that was just sort of a typical Eastern European type of connection um, that hmm. you know, the region shares with all of the regions around uh, Eastern Europe.
0: That that is that is crazy, and all I could think about is now I'm going to hear someone say, "Yeah, the Illyrians built the pyramids."
1: <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> um, they, I don't know, did they build the Bosnian pyramids first before they went
2: the ones in Egypt? Oh, that's uh, yeah, that's a, yeah, that's uh, there you yeah. Go. There totally, we go. We're I think we totally uh, total. Uh, uh, I I think we way.
0: need to have a pyramid a pyramid, and then we have the whole Albanian pyramid scheme of the 1990s. So I think we we have a pyramid. That uh, one was podcast.
2: the alien. That one was really <laughs> the. <aliens. laughs> that was okay.
0: the alien. Yeah, we have a pyramid podcast on the horizon. I'm oh, just totally. sensing it right now.
1: No, like, yeah, the pyramid, Eastern European pyramid connections. Um, I like it. No, that is a good fact. And of the course, then I have to make the um, obligatory joke that Muhammad Ali Pasha then sort of takes over rule of Egypt and eventually goes on to fight George Foreman in the Rumble in the Jungle. Am I right? right and yeah, that's, good. yeah, you're right. Anyway. Right. That's
2: totally right. Um, Central Africa's in the mix too
1: somehow yeah um nice so that is one that is one example of many that we get that we will get some more of like totally interesting factoids that i bet i bet everybody listening to this unless you happen to be um an albanian patriot did not know that the for a long time the ruling dynasty in egypt was albanian in, in origin there you go that's good stuff
0: um okay. I, I think Tomek is definitely going to be on our next um uh, trivia quiz thing when we, we've done a trivia kind of like Eastern Europe uh, quiz thing as a podcast before we did it live so you're gonna have to get on that for the next one I don't know which team you'll be on or you'll just be one of you know it'll be like the three of us versus like everyone else on the internet this will be pretty cool
1: yeah you could totally do a stump of the chunks kind of thing where you you throw out questions at us uh in, you know I don't know if, yeah um true or false um, Albanians ruled Egypt for a century, and I would have said false until that factoid. Um, okay, let's get into a big big question, which you address in the book and is something that Andrew and I on the podcast talk about every so often, and that is, how do you define Eastern Europe? So what's kind of the what would you give as a, a um, short-ish answer to what is Eastern Europe?
2: Uh, well, I'll, I'll say that my shortish answer took years. Of- research mm-hmm. uh, to, to achieve, um, there is no really good answer. So we know that, you know, at the end of the 18th century, um, you have uh, a few, particularly some French phil- philosophers who start talking about this idea of an Eastern Europe uh, as an entity unto itself. It was more than a geographic. And that's really the beginning of this notion of there's Europe, but then mm-hmm. there's Eastern Europe, the other Europe, the rest. Um, I defined it as that part of Europe that was consistently um, caught between or connected to um, these other important cultural zones: Northern Europe, Western Europe, Southern Europe, uh, North Africa, the Middle East, Central Asia, the steppe in particular. Um, now, with that said, I had to, you know, there were some lines drawn. Um, I, I could, I did not include the Caucasus uh, in, mm-hmm. in Eastern Europe, even though technically. You know, geographically, they're in Europe and they're on the eastern half of it, certainly. But the problem is, is they have they are a microcosm unto themselves. You know, they have a history that goes back far longer than any of the other states. But they also were very isolated from many of the events that were formative for places like Poland, Estonia, Albania, Bulgaria. So they they were just completely off on a, a very different economic and historical uh, thread. So. I ended up excluding them, although some of that research, I have some quotes from historians of that region uh, in, in the book as well, but uh, yeah, I tried to look at the, the different forces that shaped Eastern Europe, what makes it Eastern European, and, and there are a lot of oddities like, uh, you know, that uh, Prague, is, we generally consider an Eastern European city, Vienna is considered nowadays a Western European city. Vienna is east of Prague. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's those kinds of oddities that show up. It's the same thing when you look at Warsaw and Stockholm, you know, on a a north-south axis. You know, these these definitions begin to break down. So you've got to look at economic flows, uh, historical flows, uh, cultural interaction. Those are the ways I think that you can best define the area. Mm
1: -hmm. Interesting. And so let me push a little bit deeper on this one. Like, I mean, you mentioned Prague and it's obviously where I live and I sort of think about this. So this isn't necessarily disagreeing with you, but how would you um, respond to the idea that um, Prague actually has, let me just float this hypothesis and see where you take it. That Prague, for example, and hence kind of Bohemia has more in common historically with say, I don't know what, uh, Western Germany and even parts of France than it does with say, Eastern Ukraine or Russia. And yet it's kind of sometimes considered Eastern Europe. I don't know, where would you go with that one?
2: Um, I had, uh, during a book signing for the first edition, this is the second edition is mm-hmm. coming out. Uh, I had a Polish woman, a very a young Polish lady stood up in the crowd and very angrily with the fingers pointed towards me. Uh, in, in accusatory fashion saying Poland is not Eastern Europe, how dare you call us Eastern Europeans, we are Central Europeans, we are part of the Western tradition, and she's not wrong, um, mm-hmm. you know, so again, these, these um, definitions are not absolute, and in fact, I have a special section, uh, subsection, in one of the early geography chapters on um, defining the concept of Central Europe, for instance, and how it's changed radically, even just over the 20th century, um, where at one point in the beginning of the century it, it included those lands that both the Habsburgs and the German Empire ruled, which would include the Czech lands that would be considered Central Europe, like, Mittelo-Europa, as the Germans called it, um, that that cultural concept from the mid nineteenth century German nationalism. But then, um, you know, you have the the World War, and then you have the, the Cold War, and Central Europe in the West comes to mean. Um, Alpine Europe more or less. So Eastern France, Germany, Switzerland, Northern Italy, um, and the, the Iron Curtain very clearly delineated where Eastern Europe was. Towards the 1970s and the 80s, as they have the right of the rise of dissent uh, across Eastern Europe, the, the Soviet bloc states, Poles, Czechs, uh, Hungarians, Slovenians, Croatians all started reviving this earlier notion of a Central Europe, East Central Europe. For instance, you know we're, we're the eastern half of that, large, that larger Central European cultural realm. Um, I make it clear that none of these definitions are absolute. You know, When you look mm-hmm. at a country like Poland, there are parts of it that, that are much more clearly oriented towards that German-focused history. There are parts of it that are much more Baltic-facing. There are parts of it right now, as you see around Suwałki and Bialystok, uh, where you have that, the crisis of Belarus that are, are much more Eastern Slavic. My wife's family. My wife is from Poland, and half of her family lives right on the Ukraine border. Um, hmm. you know, they're facing crisis uh, for the past several years uh, because of the, the Russian intervention. Um, there, you know, there are a lot. The Eastern Orthodox churches out, outnumber the Catholic churches in their town, the town that they live in. Um, so, these realms, most countries, Hungary, Romania, um, the Czech lands, are are not so absolutely tied to any of these general cultural mm-hmm. zones that we've created. And we've tried to, especially in the 20th century, we tried to pretend that these were absolute cultural zones. You we were clearly on this line or that side of the line, but they're not. You know, the, the truth is is clearly the Czechs have a lot of interaction and not just in the receiving end. You know, As I make clear in the book, I describe how you know the importance of, of the kingdom of Bohemia in the Holy Roman Empire, very definitive and, and powerful, is strong enough that it caused the the it, its succession crisis led to the beginning of the Thirty Years' War. It was that important for the Habsburgs. Uh, so it, there there isn't this absolute line that you can draw. So a Czech can uh, argue uh, w- with validity: we're a part of the Western tradition. We're a part of the uh, and, and certainly the Czech lands were were a huge battleground for the old mm. the, the Eastern Church and and the Frankish Western Church uh, in the early medieval days. So. They have mixed elements of those traditions baked into their history and their modern cultures.
1: Yeah, and I think that's a fair um, kind of way of helping define what counts as Eastern Europe is that it is a place where um, some of these different civilizations kind of meet and interact and sometimes fit together and sometimes uh, what like, um, you know, strafe each other, I guess, in a way that I don't know what Southern Europe, for example, you know, does have some some of that vis-a-vis North Africa and other things, but like Western Europe, or or um, in terms of like France, say, or the Netherlands, or or the British Isles, like not to say there's not obviously kind of cultural cross currents going on there, but it's just a very different thing than you know, uh, Czech lands, Poland, Romania, for example, um, Ukraine, certainly Southeastern Europe. So I think that's actually interesting, an interesting feature of, of defining and one of the things that does make this part of the world special. And I think one of the reasons why we love
2: it. One of the observations I make um, is that uh, in, the, in the early 20th century in particular, it was popular to say that Western Europe is this Germanic Latin realm, while Eastern Europe is a Slavic realm. Well, that seems mm-hmm. pretty clear, doesn't it? um let's ignore the reality that Eastern Europe is not completely Slavic let's Mm -hmm. just put that aside for a moment but um what I argue is that the the real difference from that ethnic perspective uh between Eastern and Western Europe is that Western Europe and remember West Europe as a whole is a peninsula and Western Europe is the nubby end of the peninsula Mm -hmm. Um, because of that isolation um, it has been able to historically over the past 2000 years develop Uh, stronger uh, state institutions and sharper ethnic uh, identities than Eastern Europe has been able to do. It's just been a lot more confusion, a lot more uh, instability, volatility, not just political, but economic as well, and cultural uh, in in the sense, and when you look at uh, religious heresies, et cetera, that may have made it more difficult so that um, you have weird things like Lemko's in Poland are they a really a people, or are they just a subunit of Ukrainians? You know, uh, same with the the Secai in in uh, Transylvania. Are they Roma- Are they Hungarians, or are they a, a distinct people? You don't have those arguments in Western Europe, even though the odd thing is, from a genetic perspective, we're learning that most Europeans pretty much come from the same pool of of people, uh, east and west. So there's you know the, the our ethnic identities are relatively artificial and fairly recent mm. uh, from a larger historical perspective. It's just that Western Europe was able to the strong, sharper identities along these lines that Eastern Europe has been able to.
1: Yeah, totally. How dare you say that ethnic identities are relatively recent? We have been Hungarians for millennia. The Hungarian identity will be undying and live forever. Sorry, and that's not just a, t- not a, not a shot at Hungarian. That's like a shot at all nationalists anywhere.
2: Yeah, um, um, I've yeah, I've had a lot of those fun reactions.
0: I can imagine. Um, so Timac, uh, because you are you're bringing up these other other like small groups that are in Romania or Poland, uh, I, I'm I'm just curious, what do you know about Kashubians? In Poland, do you know? Do you know anything about them? Because I've been to that Kashubia land once, and I found it very interesting. And there was this beautiful un, unfinished castle made by some private guy, and I think it's still unfinished. And I'm always like, that's just this weird group, like that never comes up anywhere. And I'm like, maybe I'm the only person who knows about them.
2: Uh, my wife, when she was a little girl, the family would take them to the Baltic coast, and uh, she has memories of being in shops. And all these people around her were, all these adults were chatting in some language that she could not understand. But then the moment she came up to the counter, they'd switched to Polish and everything fine. <laughs> um, the Kalshruv is, uh, so the, um, Poland was a dumping ground for a, a lot of groups um, uh, as you had westward momentum from the steppe and when the Slavic invasions happened. And so the growth, the the, the early history of Poland is the slow development of a state from the central plains that was able to spread itself outward, um, only relatively recently, really to the Baltic coast. But to the West, um, there were several Slavic groups in what are today Silesia and Pomerania and in Lusatia in Germany, and they still exist. The, the, what they they're, they're called Lusatians, uh, the, the Germans called them the Vens. Uh, they call themselves Serbs, uh, but in English they're sometimes called Sorbians or Sorbs. Um, oh, yeah. A colleague, a friend of mine, John Cox, uh, spends a lot of time uh, speaking with some of the, the local activists there. But there is, there's still a strong Slavic minority just south of Berlin and New These are groups that tried to maintain their own independence as much against the Poles as against the Germans. They ended up losing, obviously. Um, the story when I was growing up was that the Khashogues are just a subgroup of Poles. You know, Poles with a really funny accent, that type of thing. I, I can... I can understand. There are times when I can understand Koshyub, Um, but uh, it it it's very tenuous. Uh, so um, I would say uh, it's it's further Polish and Kashub by much further uh, in terms of mutual comprehensibility than, say, Czechoslovak.
0: So. Hmm. Okay. Yeah, I was going to say with the uh, the story that your wife told you, I've made. I had a similar story with my daughter who did a cooking class in Eastern Slovenia in the Prek Morie region, the chicken head part. And I asked her afterwards if she made any friends. And she spoke, you know, she speaks Slovenian. She was already going to, I think she was in first or second grade. And she was like, no, I didn't understand what anyone was saying. And then I thought, oh, shit. Yeah, it's like everyone there was probably uh, speaking in their uh, dialect, which Which I wouldn't, which I wouldn't know, but I know, but I do know that that if you speak that, the rest of Slovenians aren't going to understand you. So, (laughs) yeah, one of those strange
2: things. Yeah, she's from Silesia. Uh, That's where she was raised, actually, and uh, she knows that Silesian Polish. And I, you know, I I can't. (laughs) There's some. She can go places. I can't go with that.
0: The other thing that I was gonna uh, just gonna uh, comment on is. You know, even Ben and I have this issue. I mean, we, we call our podcast is Eastern Approaches because well well, we have a, a reason why, because it's named after a book, but it also sounds better than like Central Eastern approaches or Central Eastern and Balkan approaches. And I think sometimes when you when you need to condense something, uh for a for a product or a book or whatever, um, you can't have this slash this slash this uh or, or what have you. I mean, where I live. Even it's like, I kind of say, oh, I do tours in Slovenia, Croatia, and the Balkans. I could just say, I do tours in the Balkans, but then I would have the same thing as like the Polish girl yelling at you. Mm -hmm. Um, And most people would probably be right, because I don't really think Slovenia and Croatia for the most part are are the Balkans. So, but but you kind of have to, you you just have to jump in and start reading something on or learning something or traveling to one of these, to, to this like kind of general place of Eastern Europe or Central Europe, whatever. And then you start figuring out, okay, this is kind of more Balkans, this is more Central Europe, this is more Mediterranean Europe, or whatever it might be. And it's really hard to get that across to the general public in one fail swoop, which is why, you know, like Lonely Planet, or any guidebook, they always have the Eastern Europe one, but then some of them will have like the Central Europe one, or the Mediterranean Europe one, or the Balk- Lonely Planet Balkans, because those are for people who know more already. And then they're not like, yeah, I just want this balkan area and i don't i'm not going to poland or ukraine or or latvia so you know and and they know that but for the general public you got to start somewhere i think
2: um the good news is no matter what definitions you choose you're going to be wrong and someone somewhere will point oh, right. that out to you <laughs> yeah. um i had an albanian friend who when he when he first saw my book his reaction was why do you cover albania we're not in eastern europe we're in the balkans um so uh-huh. um yep. it's uh yeah, you're going to lose from the definition perspective, no matter what what tact you take. There is no there is no good way, but it's it also speaks to, again, the whole concept of Eastern Europe has traditionally been defined from the outside by others, and uh, it's we we you know we we're struggling with the definition exactly because there's never been a good one. Yeah,
0: mm-hmm. and I also think at some point maybe. Maybe there'll be less emphasis on this. And maybe people will just talk more about countries. Like, you know, no one who goes to Italy says, Oh, I'm, I'm I've got a, I've got a three day week uh, trip to, to Western Europe. They just like, I go to, I'm going to Italy. Right. No one in Western, no one going to Western Europe says, Oh, I'm going to go to Western Europe. So maybe, maybe someday, I mean, I mean, I hear that now from people, they're just like, Oh, yeah, I'm going, I'm going to Croatia, you know, without the I'm going to someplace in Eastern Europe, but then they tell you where it is. So I think that's changing and will change. But certainly Western Europeans don't ever say you know, they don't ever have to think of like de- de- defining themselves as or defending themselves as like, oh, no, I'm Western European. No, I don't never met anyone who sure. says that in Western
2: Europe. Yeah, you don't get bar brawls over that one. Um, yeah. When I was my very first trip, uh, when I was flying to Poland, I was in JFK. I was maybe 20, 19, 19, 20 years old. And um, uh, I was kind of hitting on a girl who was in a juice stand. And back then I was a skinny kid and had hair and, that was you know the police weren't going to be called i could actually get away with that
0: but but this uh, hold on this is a podcast so you're you know i think you still have hair in, in our skin yeah, exactly. right. Yeah, my, totally let, me, let me
2: get my bangs out of my eyes here for a second sorry mm-hmm. um but uh, uh so I, I was talking to this girl and uh, and i just she said so where are you going and i said well i'm going to europe of course which you know obviously impresses girl socks off back then mm. Uh, and then we were talked further. She said, well, where specifically are you going? I said, well, I'm, I'm on my way to Poland. Her face dropped. He said, I thought you said you were going to Europe. <sighs> this conversation is over.
1: That, that's a real thing. Oh, that's amazing. To me. Um, man. But there is still that mental map, I think. Like, I agree, Andrew, that I think the mental map is breaking down a little bit. But there's still this mental map for Western Europeans and people outside of Europe. Where, like, Eastern Europe is, a, is different. It's a th- Thing. You cross into a different civilization there like the Iron Curtain is still in people's heads. I think it's breaking down, but it's it isn't gone yet, I feel like.
0: Well, uh, I mean, maybe, but I mean some places that let's say that that maybe an average American would think is Eastern Europe, or what's in this book. Like any Europe, any German, Poles, Austrians, Italians going to Croatia would never say, I'm going Mm-mm. to Eastern Europe. Oh, where are you going? Oh, down to the Almatian coast. Yeah. Like, so, like, I mean, like, so I think, I think you you might be right if they're like, oh, I'm got a business trip. I'm going to Kiev. It's like, oh, shit, I'm going to Eastern Europe. Uh, but I, I think there's certain places in their, like, Croatia, just because of the tourism, mm. the fact that Europeans have been going there for so long, there's no way like they're thinking of that as Eastern Europe. So like they're already like ahead of the rest of the average people by going, well, this isn't really Eastern Europe. Or if it was like, no one thinks of it like that anymore.
2: Mm. Um, I have a quote from Konrad uh, Adenauer, the the German politician who, who led West Germany out of the wreckage of World War II. Um, uh, and uh, laid the groundwork for modern German democracy. But um, before the war, uh, he was just a, a rep in the German Reichstag parliament uh, for Rhineland, but um, uh, in Western Germany, but uh, because at that time Prussia pretty much, the Prussian state had expanded to such an extent that it included his his part of Rhineland, he had to travel to Berlin often. and. Um, uh, he has this quote, uh, one of his uh, aides said that uh, when he'd be taking the train eastward uh, to Berlin, when he when would cross the Elba River, he would say, he would mutter to himself, when begins uh, here, and this is where Asia begins. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, it's, it's been a concept that, that a lot of folks have been struggling with. for while.
1: Yeah. Um, okay, man, we could go on that topic for another few hours, but let me just, I wanna bounce off a couple of things you said, um, move on a little bit. One of the things you said, Tomek, which made me laugh, um, and I can't imagine why uh, you might occasionally piss off the you know the nationalists because you said you described Poland as like a dumping ground of peoples in history. Well, I can't imagine why they would be upset about that. But then the connection that I'm making is it something that struck me in the book um, was when you you described the the Pole the Polish tribe's decision to occupy the territory that became Poland as one of the 10 worst decisions in history. And we were kind of talking earlier about, you know, how Western Europe is at the end of the peninsula and Eastern Europe is is a thoroughfare and Poland is like the the most thorough of the thoroughfares, kind of wide open. And that, my thought there is just like geography influences history, obviously, which is one of the reasons why I think you described that terrible decision to like make, oh, let's, let's make Poland here, because it is a thoroughfare. Um,
2: Um, Yeah, go ahead.
1: Yeah, and then, and so talk about that, but then the other thing I was going to ask you about is, Mm -hmm. is um, if, if there's other interesting turning points that you would cite as in the history of the region that you think are particularly fascinating.
2: Um, Okay, so first, um, I can't take uh, credit for that, that quote. That's actually a quote uh, from Uh, I believe her name is Lipniacka, she has a a, a very uh, really nice little intro to Poland uh, book um, and she talks about uh, this this legend, uh, pre-Christian legend Mm -hmm. uh, among the Slavic peoples of three brothers, Lech, Czech and Mm -hmm. Rus. Um, Lech, uh, the the early Polish tribes are called Lechitic tribes, that's why it's a common name like Lech Walesa today. Mm -hmm. Uh, So uh, the three brothers, these three Slavic brothers are traveling along Czech comes across a clearing and he's like, this is great. And he, he founds his nation, becomes a Czech nation there. Uh, Lech and, and the Rus continue on and uh, they come to another clearing, but there's a tree and there's an eagle. Um, and the eagle has blood on its feathers. It's a white eagle, but it's got blood on its feathers. And Lech decides, well, this is a sign from the gods. I'm settling here. And he creates Poland and then the Rus continues east. Um, that's the legend. And she recounts this legend and it says, you know lex decision has got to be counted as one of the worst mm-hmm. decisions in history um because as you say uh if you're coming so for 2000 years uh there's this great it's called the pontic step the great step the russian step uh the mongolian step uh the central asian step all different names it's all the same thing it's this big rolling grassland that stretches from northern china and mongolia through central asia kazakhstan kyrgyzstan Uzbekistan, and then across southern Russia, the Volga region, and across southern and central Ukraine, and then kind of peters out right near the Romanian border on, on the northern Black Sea. There, For 2,000 years, there was this huge uh, conveyor belt, I call it, of humanity, of people being pushed by the civilizations, China, India, Persia, that were fed up with these nomadic steppe peoples and pushing them westward into Europe. Um, and, and a huge number of modern Europeans, including Germanic peoples, Celtic peoples, they came from that step. they were all part of that, a product of that. And in fact, you, you know, uh, in Poland recently, there's been some discoveries of uh, Celtic settlements near Caraku, uh archaeological findings. Uh, so uh, if you were on that conveyor belt, um, and, and uh, then you basically had two options when you got to Europe. Uh, you you were confronted with the Carpathian Mountains, which formed the sort of stone fortress, right dead center surrounding what is today Hungary and parts of Slovakia and, and Romania. Um, you could go northward through Poland and Germany, or you could go southward into the Balkans. That was it. Which means both, that's why the Balkans and Poland and Germany have these extremely mixed uh, ethnic uh heritages it's it's just impossible to untie them uh from what, this constant flow of humanity and that's iranian peoples turkic peoples uh finno-ugric peoples like the hungarians but others as well the Celts, like i said uh others they all came flowing into europe through these these two mechanisms so um uh yeah so the, being a nationalist in this part of the world you, you have to be really extra hard-headed about
1: it <laughs> even dumber than nationalists in other parts of the world in my
2: in my. you got to go that extra mile mm-hmm.
0: well and, and i'm thinking if you're if you're like oh let's avoid the carpathian mountains by going south to the balkans gosh <laughs> there's no mountains
2: there that sounds
0: like a winner well that'll be like we'll get to, we'll get to wherever we're going super fast now on that route exactly
1: um but yeah so okay let's let's um take uh father Lex's uh decision to to found poland where he saw the the eagle as one turning point and are there some other like interesting turning points that you might cite?
2: I think um, an important part of uh, a definitive element, one of the things I really try to do with the book is this: not not just recount names of battles and generals and kings and that type of stuff. You can get that online, Wikipedia, that all, is, is all that stuff. I'm really trying to show what it meant to be somebody living in through these times and to show what did it mean to be Hungarian in 1500 versus, in Italy versus a German versus an Englishman. So those are the kinds of things I'm looking at. And uh, so when the Roman empire first collapsed, the Western half of the Roman empire, um, it, it really laid, it, it pretty much laid civilization low in central and Western Europe. You know, everything from farming, food production, uh, trade, uh, even writing in, in many mm-hmm. places just vanished. And, um, so a couple different trade routes developed. And one of them was through Northern Europe, uh, through the, the North Sea and the Baltic Sea. And this is a really weird story because these uh, trade lines ended up stretching throughout what is today Russia down to the Black and the Caspian Seas. And from there to both the Eastern Roman lands, the Byzantine lands, uh, westward, but also eastward into the Arab lands. And that ultimately leads to the founding of Russia. But this means that the earliest trade routes that began to revive after the Romans uh, began in Eastern Europe. And there's a I have a compendium over here of Arab uh, uh, travelers throughout Eastern Europe, for instance, uh, at this time, and we're talking 600, 700s, 800s, eight hundreds, nine hundreds. So uh, this is the beginning of the revival. and and the what changed the course of that trade was the Crusades in the Mediterranean. And the connection of all these southern Europeans with all these Middle Easterners. And when they weren't fighting, they decided to start trading because they, they discovered that they had stuff that the other didn't. And so the development that's sort of the earliest origins from about 1100 on of the Renaissance of that that revival of trade between Southern Europe and the Middle East. That took a lot of that northern European trade away from Eastern Europe. Uh, and then the next step was the rise of the Turks. Uh, who strangled that trade that mediterranean trade and pushed a couple new countries in western europe portugal and spain to hit the ocean and start looking for other ways to trade so there was this huge economic shift that took place that at one point made eastern europe the epicenter for european trade and then took it away and Mm -hmm. shifted it to the atlantic facing western european states yeah and that's super
1: interesting because that's i mean I know from my own kind of historical reading and work like there's this thing that's getting super nerdy into the weeds we don't have to go that deep into it but like there's this whole thing the second serfdom that kind of happens in like the 16th century as trade shifts away from some of these old um routes that ran through the region and you know less of a monetary economy and so the landlords are all like okay serfs turns out you guys have to do all this forced labor again which is when people talk about some of the quote backwardness of eastern europe like at various points, it wasn't, quote, backward, right? At various points, it, in some ways, it was you know, sort of on the forefront of developments, but then there are some of these kind of turning points, like you're saying with the, um, the kind of, I don't know what, the breaking up of some of the trade routes to the region, especially the shift of trade towards the Atlantic, that then do re- result in some, if that's if it's an okay word, like retardation of some of the societies and economies in, in Eastern Europe.
2: Uh, indeed, and you know, there in Prague, uh, Prague was, as I as I really strongly emphasize, you know, medieval Prague was an important scientific uh, and cultural center uh, for all of Europe. Uh, you know, it was, it was a leading educational center, uh, leading uh, trade and commercial center as well, and uh, that um, you know, it, it's 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 an amazing story, as you say, from about the seventeenth century on, when you see the, the you know a very rapid waning of fortunes in the region uh, as compared to Western Europe.
1: Mm-hmm. Given our time, let me ask you to, like, for another one of these fun trivia facts from the book that that will help, I think, kind of grab people and say like, wow, yeah, there's this super interesting stuff, which I never actually knew about, but connects in all these interesting ways. So what else can you give us here?
2: Um, when you think of American and Canadian history, we tend to think of these uh, Atlantic-facing Um, colonies that slowly over, you know, over the the 17th and the 18th, especially in the 19th century, we're we're spreading westward to the Pacific coast and that's how we think of our our histories. Um, We tend to forget that there there was a Pacific side of European settlement as well. Um, Spain uh, in, in, um, uh, there was a a mixture of of political fortunes in in St. Petersburg and Russia, uh, in the early uh, 18th century. And Spain withdrew its ambassador. Uh, and then for, so for 30 decades, there was no official legal contract sure. between Spain and Russia. Uh, and then um, right around 1759, uh, 1760, Spain decides to reestablish. So they send a new ambassador and his first job is to kind of figure out what, what are the Rusevsky's been up to um, all this time. And uh, one of the things they're shocked to discover is that the Russians have colonized Alaska, have established the city of Sitka, and have um, aggressively uh, been uh, sending fishing fleets all up and down the, the Pacific coastline. This spooks uh, Madrid. And Madrid immediately draws up plans to move north of Mexico. And this is the, the, the driver behind the creation of uh, California. There was uh, Palo uh, uh, Alto, rather uh, California, and Baja California. Baja Mm -hmm. was the desert sandy, almost nobody lived there, but you put a few monasteries there and it's yours. Uh, But there was the Palo Alto California, the larger uh, California that we know um, that Spain immediately aggressively began to colonize. Well, they bumped into Russians just as they feared. Um, Russia uh, was trying to establish uh, some settlements. Uh, They didn't successfully do this, but they were looking at what is today the state of Washington. Um, and Oregon, uh, they were looking at what is Nanook Harbor and and Vancouver, Canada, Hmm. and ultimately uh, right about the time that the U.S. and Britain were going to war again uh, in 1812, the Russians sent uh, a large group of colonists, about 100 colonists, down to what is today the Sonoma coastline of California, uh, just north of, of San Francisco and established a fort which we're not certain because the records were destroyed, but we, we assume it was called Fort Russia. Russia is just Russia in Russian. But because of that, it survives in American English as Fort Ross, that's how it's remembered. Mm-hmm. It existed for a few decades and it actually was relatively prosperous. Um, the, the numbers grew to, I think about 150. Um, they tried to rely on internal agriculture, but it didn't work. But they got along with the local Indians so well that they just started co-farming um, with the local Indians in, hmm. in Northern California and were doing very well. Uh, and this went on uh, until uh, I think about 1829, when the problem was that uh, Britain by this point and the Americans were starting to push closer. There were a lot more explorers showing up. There were warships showing up uh, and the Russian government decided it just was too far and it was, it wasn't tenable. So they ended up selling it actually to uh, uh, a, a Swiss guy uh, John uh, Sutter uh, Johannes Sutter is his name mm-hmm. everyone knows his name in California history just a few years later uh, on his farm they discovered gold in 1849 and that kicked off the California gold rush but he owned Fort Ross for a few years and didn't do much with it. It still exists today uh, as a museum. Uh, California maintains that but uh, so for about 20 some years yeah no, there was a the Russian attempt to Uh, basically grab Northern California and then the Pacific Northwest.
1: Yeah, and I love that kind of stuff. I mean, I know that the what-ifs in alternative history may be sneered at by um, some academic historians, but I think just in that story you just told, there's so many interesting what-ifs, right? Like, what happens if the Russians had managed to hold on to California uh, just long enough for when the gold rush starts, and then suddenly there's this incredible wealth coming out of that territory then does the tsarist empires would invest more in that and you know is uh Is Silicon Valley today? Everybody's wearing the big uh, furry caps and drinking vodka all the the time. I
2: don't know. I mean, you know, they do that anyway, don't they?
1: Yeah, Um, I uh, (laughs) I don't don't know what those those Silicon Valley millionaire hipsters are are doing with their time, but um, it's maybe not the the furry cap but the the furry beards that they've definitely.
2: There you go. There you go. There's some fur involved. Um, It almost went further, by the way. Baranov, who was the the architect of a lot of this, um, from Alaska, Russian Alaska. Uh, he also was he opened relations with the, uh, there was a Polynesian king who had seized power and united the Kingdom of Hawaii, um, and he had established relations with them and he was trying to get a Russian naval base established in on Hawaii, um, with the ultimate goal of seizing it that was his, his, mm-hmm. uh, his, uh, his uh, aim, uh, but he unfortunately his argument was that look, Fort Ross is working out great Northern California is going to be ours. You know this will be a part of that. We need this larger Pacific presence. It fell apart the Hawaii plan just because Fort Ross ended up being abandoned. And it was St. Petersburg that forced uh, him to to abandon the, uh, the Fort Ross uh, settlement.
1: Super, super interesting. yeah, that is that is much fodder for interesting alternate histories right there and that the story of Russia and uh, what is now the western u s. super interesting, yeah. so just kind of starting to wrap up what could be a much longer conversation. I'm interested, to make like one of the things about the books that it really does, it covers everything from, you know, prehistory essentially, or just you know, where where our historiography kind of begins and goes up to the modern day. Um, and not only is it that expansive in its kind of um, timeline view, but it's also quite expansive in its geographical view. And so I appreciate it that you're like managing to include in each chapter usually like oh there's a little bit about Montenegro what the heck was going on in Montenegro I mean nobody writes about Montenegro right or you know like we were talking earlier about some of the, the smaller peoples who never ended up forming nation states that kind of stuff like they get their little bits um and so with this pretty expansive purview I found myself wondering well actually what's Tomek's favorite like place or period so you know the the cheese ball question is, if you had a time machine, where and when would you go back to in Eastern Europe?
2: Wow. Um, you know, I've been, uh, that, that's a really difficult, I think that the, probably the most interesting place because there's so little known about it. Um, so here's this weird factoid, is that it's actually quite common to find Roman artifacts in Poland today. Even though mm. Poland was nowhere near the what is today the territory of Poland was nowhere near any Roman borders. The closest you get is Hungary, the, the old Roman pro- province of Pannonia. Um, but it is common. And the reason is that Roman traders were, were regularly going to the Baltic uh, looking for amber. Uh, amber was a mm. huge uh, commodity going back to the Neolithic. Um, there is Baltic amber found uh, in, in the graves of the people who built Stonehenge in Britain. There is Baltic amber found in Pharaoh's graves in Egypt. There was this huge trade network that stretched to the middle east to western europe uh to you know to central asia of, of this baltic amber um and it involves all these different peoples who were mixing and meeting um i find uh there was there was a finding of uh in, in northern germany and the baltic coast close to the polish border of buried arab silver that has arab inscriptions huh. on it um from uh, from pre-christian times um and so it'd be interesting to visit the baltic and just see all these different people. Uh, who were who were tussling together, trading, mixing it up to see what that world will really look like. That that would probably be my first. I mean, there's a lot of other places to go. A lot of Mm. times I would definitely avoid. uh, There were were definitely interesting, uh, a lot of interesting uh, things to see, but that that would probably be my first.
1: Yeah, no, that's I mean, I just don't know that much about the Baltic and it's it's so generally overlooked um, as an area which I mean, I don't think it gets a lot of tourists from outside the region. Anywhere, you know, from Poland on up through Estonia, like not that many tourists from outside the region go there. And it's uh, especially because I think it's now a good portion of it is in these little tiny states of the, you know, Latvia, Lithuania, Estonia. That is that even more helps explain why it's overlooked. And people think, well, what could be interesting about the Latvians? But as you're saying, like there's, you know, you don't have to scratch or dig that deep, and there's all kinds of interesting things kind of undiscovered there um so that's kind of a good kick in my pants to like eh, i learn more about that
0: um so, i want answer
1: oh yeah i was, was going to answer my own question where are you going to
0: oh, go Andrew? oh no 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 that's fine ben you okay. you you, you, well, yeah, you, you, can, you take the time machine now I, well, hold on we got to <laughs> disinfect it. we got the covid exactly. measures exactly. do thorough doesn't just like all the airbnbs now you got to wait outside to get that full like disinfect going exactly luckily our time i, I did was, clean
2: but, off the flux flux capacitor oh, 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 thank nice. you
0: Well, luckily
1: our time machine is like those um coin operated toilets in a lot of places where as soon as the door closes it just like sprays it with uh with extremely toxic fluids and then the door opens again it's like next um so next i come in there and i was thinking like where would i go and i mean my i have it is a hard question it's hard to narrow down i definitely partly out of walking in their steps every day would love to see Prague during the reign of Charles IV in the 1300s or uh, Rudolf II at the end of the 1500s, but I'm going to go uncharacteristic for me and say I would love, and also pushing the board, the boundaries of Eastern Europe, um, certainly today, though it wasn't, uh, you know, pushing boundaries in any sense back then, as you've already kind of mentioned, Tomic, but I would love to see uh, Constantinople during the reign of Justinian in the 500s. Right. Um, when when that was really the leading civilization in Europe um, and built, you know, I mean, the Hagia Sophia from that time, which I would love the factoid, which I think is correct, that it was the, the largest building on a planet for a thousand years, and just like trying to trying to get at the flavor of that civilization, I would love to, to check that out.
0: Uh, I'm going to have to take the time machine and not dial the date back too far because, okay. well just for the basic fact of if we actually had a time machine and you went back to these places i mean you just you would have to do something with your nose i think like the first thing you would know is like like the things would smell so different for us i mean it would be really it would be really difficult even if you like picked the right time where there wasn't some slaughter going on or the, the uh, encroaching army coming or whatever uh so i'm going to i'm going to i'm going to go real short on the history cuz i always want i always wanted to see europe in what I kind of think it would have been the golden age of travel in the 20th century would which would have been the 1960s and cuz I spent so much oh. time in I've spent so much time living and traveling in in former Yugoslavia I I would say I I I'd, I'd want to get a rental car and just drive all over Yugoslavia in the 1960s and then then I could like compare and contrast so I know it's kind of cheating cuz it's not really going back that far okay. but I'm probably guaranteed to have a better time and like probably eat and drink things that like my Body wouldn't mind putting inside of me, and it wouldn't s- smell so bad. And it, and it just, I just, I've read all these old travel books from that time period, and I, I kind of, I kind of want to see it for myself.
2: You know, this um, it's kind of interesting that there are. I've seen discussions between people who are my age and older. Uh, clearly, I'm, I'm barely out of my twenties here, but mm-hmm. uh, people who remember the old Yugoslavia or who were raised in it, um, and the discussions they have with their kids. And just how really different it it was, you know, from today, not just in terms of the technology, but in terms of culture, in terms of cultural accessibility and how different groups uh, thought about one another, or at least from an official standpoint. Um, It it really was a different world. So it's it's not really very far-fetched. We have the same uh, in our family. There are those of us who remember the communist years in Poland, and I have some younger family members who don't. Um, and, you know, for them, Poland is a very different animal than it was in the 80s
1: and 70s. Yeah. And Andrew, I I respect your choice. I would love to go back to the five that time too, but also from the kind of purely um, practical thing like you started off with, if you went back to that period with a time machine, your life expectancy would extend well beyond the age of 30, which where both Tomek and I were going, yeah, we'd both be dead by now, even though, you know, we're only in our (laughs) middle 20s, but, you know, we might... Well, we don't have a few years left. So you'd, thanks to sanitation, you could not only endure some smells, but you'd get to live longer and to enjoy it longer.
0: So. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, so let's get rid of the time machine uh, for, for my, for my last question, just with, uh, with, with modern technology and transport, where, we where, where have you been recently in Eastern Europe, Tomic, or where are you, where, wh- what's on your, you have like a, like, here's what I want to see that I haven't seen yet list. Just curious of either where you've been recently or, and places that you really want to check out that you haven't checked out yet. And obviously, um, Slovenia is going to be on that list. I'm sure. Yeah, of course, it's was,
2: it was number one. It's number one. Totally number one. Um, actually, I've hitchhiked through Slovenia, and uh, I didn't. I was coming back from Italy, so I was. I was a student in Hungary, and I was coming back from Italy. And my thought at the time was, it's just, it's in the way. I have to get from get from from Venice to Hungary. I got to go through Slovenia and or Croatia. Um, it, it was absolutely amazing. I really, I really enjoyed it. Moving on, I was uh, just an unexpected jewel. Uh, a friend of mine, an American, actually um, uh, opted. He was a Fulbright scholar in Hungary, but he opted, got himself transferred to Slovenia just so he could do the trout fishing. <laughs> he was, he was obsessed with that. So, wow. um, I guess so. I, I went to university in Hungary. I've lived and worked and lived in both Hungary and Poland primarily. Those were my two bases uh, most of the years I lived there. Um, travels uh, all throughout the what was then Czechoslovakia and, mm-hmm. and uh, since the uh, independent countries of of each um, Slovenia and, and Croatia. I spent a lot of time in Croatia, a lot of time in Romania, um, particularly Transylvania, but beyond. But um, I, when I was studying in my in my university in Hungary, was a dual major of history and ethnography, and Hungarians, of course, they sent me to Transylvania for the ethnography stuff. So. Mm. Uh, I've spent a lot of time there. Um, I would probably the place that I would uh, the place I'm going to be going most ain't going anywhere this anytime soon right. until the whole COVID thing finally dies down. Uh, but uh, southern and coastal Bulgaria are places. Um, I've been slowly dabbling with Bulgarian over the years. I've, I've been learning just because it's among the Slavic languages. It's so interesting. It's so unique uh, because of its background, its history. But um, uh, but also just because Bulgaria, as their as archaeology is getting really serious in recent decades, they're really coming to appreciate that this is the ground zero for you know early metallurgy, early urban mm-hmm. development in Europe. This is it. You know, this is where where a lot of that started. So there's a very clear line drawn between the Near East, the Middle East, and the earliest civilizational inklings, um, mm-hmm. embers in Europe, uh, and they, and they happen in. Almost mostly in Bulgaria, Thrace, you know, in Turkish Thrace, Greek Thrace, but Bulgaria. Uh, so, I'd really like to. It'd be a great thing. Like to take a summer off and just do a, a archaeological tour of Bulgaria. And wouldn't hurt to spend some time in the Black Sea coast. That that wouldn't hurt. Uh, mm-hmm. You could do worse. You could do worse. Some wines, some nice flowers. Why not? Absolutely. We're married, so I won't mention the women. But some wines some nice flowers. <sighs> mm-hmm.
1: what happens in Bulgaria? No. Um, (laughs) um, Awesome. Well, uh, Tomek, thank you so much for being on the podcast. And I definitely want to recommend anybody listening that uh, if you want to dive into a highly readable, um, expansive history of Eastern Europe, Tomek's book, Eastern Europe, is a great place to start. And where can people get the book, Tomik? Can they find it on Amazon everywhere?
2: It's Amazon is probably your best place. Um, I know that. Uh, so this was actually published. Uh, there are two publishers involved, and, and we have kind of a new distribution network. So um, look look at a bookstore near you. But Amazon is probably yeah. the easiest place.
1: The Easiest, yeah. For better and for worse, the the Amazon juggernaut uh, is is a one stop for everybody. Um, Cool. Well, it's definitely worth checking out that book. Thank you so much for all your work on the book, because I know that is a major, major undertaking to do so and well done that you turned out something really interesting and fun and and educative I think in the best possible way.
2: Well, Ben Andrew, thank you for having me has been a really fun discussion.
0: And and I and I hope you'll come back when we do kind of our pub trivia night. Uh, you know, cause then you, I mean, you just, you know, kind of, you get your own drink where you're at and we get our own <laughs> drinks here and, and we, we all, we'll all write questions, you know, and then we'll go through and we, we did this once and had a great time and, and got some good interaction. So we're going to invite you back on, you know, whether you, whether you want to come on, I don't, I don't right. know, but if you, if you want to come on, it'd be, it'd be awesome to have you because uh, I, I have think a think could...
2: appointment <laughs> that day. Um, yeah, exactly.
0: <laughs> yeah, exactly.
2: Make up your own excuse. No, that's awesome. That'd be fun. I, I'd, I'd love to try it. Cool.
1: Well, thanks, Tomek. Uh, thanks, Andrew. Thanks, everybody, for listening. And we hope to catch everyone again soon on the next episode of Eastern Approaches, whatever that might be, sooner rather than later, we all hope.
0: It'll be less than three a three-month wait time, you know. The, you know, this has been kind of like Stranger Things Season 4, you know. People, I'm <laughs> sure they're like, it's coming, it's coming. No, it's not maybe it's coming next summer who the hell knows so we're going to try to we're going to try to get the the episode 26 out the door a little bit more quickly uh uh i hope i think we hope
1: and in episode 26 it's going to be we're all going to be playing younger versions of ourselves but it's still going to be it's still we're going to be old people playing teenagers which i think is now the case for we've
2: got to run with avatars that'll be exactly there are more attractive actors (laughs)
1: and thank god it's a podcast right so no one has to know it's no one only hear us